0: invite you to turn to John chapter 17 verses 14 through 19. Um, we, are, we are getting close to the end of our series in hard questions, honest answers, uh, and so next two weeks are going to be more, uh, th- these last few have been kind of intellectual, last ones are going to be a little bit more relational and emotional, uh, but we're going to talk about truth today. We're going to talk about truth, and I want to I take you back Uh, To London England in November of 1943 and I want you to take a look at this British novelist sitting down to write a book his name is Eric Blair and Eric Blair uh, has been immersed in the news business and he has seen horrible tragedy around the world as he's seen the rise of totalitarian governments, and he's angry, and he's had enough, and he wants to write against this. But I will tell you, in 1943 to uh, 45, to write against this was very dangerous. So he adopts a pen name that you all know George Orwell. And rather than writing a nonfiction book about all that he's seen, he writes, A fiction book about animals I mean how angry can you get about animals and he writes the book animal farm which by every measure has been one of the top 100 novels ever written if you modern library it was number 31 Uh, it was uh, number 20 in another survey that I read this is an an amazing very influential novel well animal farm is a, a novel about well, it's about truth, about truth. And the story goes like this. There's some barnyard animals who conspire to overthrow their human masters. And they believe that human masters are exploiting them. So they're going to take over, and they set up a totally egalitarian society. Nobody's better, nobody's worth. Everybody is totally equal, totally equal. Sounds like a great society, right? A totally equal society. Wrong. They soon have a big problem because the pigs disrupt the revolution, and with very smooth and convincing language, they argue that while all animals are equal, there are some animals that are more equal than others. And the elite animals have conferred elite status on other animals. So not not everybody is everybody's equal, but some are a little bit more equal than others, and that is a key sentence in the book, and it proved a commentary on the emerging so-called egalitarian governments around the world. Well, uh, the pigs form a dictatorship, and one of the pigs is named Squeaker, and Squeaker is really good at manipulating the truth. Squeaker can make black seem white, and he can make white seem black. And every time the decision of the leader, whose name is Napoleon, is questioned by the an- other animals. Squeaker comes in, and Squeaker represents Napoleon's interests as being good for the egalitarian nature of the entire society. Now, the reason why the book got so much traction back in the middle 1940s is because of Squeaker's function in the novel and what that means to society, even American society. Because today, what we, what we call People like Squeaker are spin doctors. We call them manipulators of the truth. Now, I want to be very careful as I, as I say this because we might call them by perfectly legitimate names. We would call them press secretaries and co- company spokesmen or family spokespersons or ombudsmen, uh, and these are perfectly legitimate professions. However, there's a culture in our society, there is an ethos within our society where people get hired to take reality and malign the reality and take this new reality and then brand that reality so that truth is no longer what really is, but is, it is a branded form of what people want you to think truth is is and as CS Lewis said if you buy into the brand you can get accepted into the inner ring and the effect of the American psyche is this we don't really know what the truth is and sometimes we prefer the branded version of the truth rather than the real thing so I ask the question is is the concept of truth even relevant today in the world that we're living in. A lot of people ask that question, I, what is truth? I mean, how do you really know what truth is? When I passed out the three by five cards last summer, and I asked you to ask the questions, this is one of those questions that came up in a lot of different forms. The form that I chose uh, based upon the questions was, is, is it even relevant to talk about truth in the kind of World that we're in today, so we want to begin like we have in this series with with the words of Jesus, and Jesus has a very refreshing take on this idea of truth because Jesus' agenda is that he wants to create a community founded on the truth. He wants to create a community of people who are countercultural. People who are resident aliens, people who are exiles, and he wants a community founded on the truth, and even more, a community that is transformed by the truth. And we, we see that in this passage in John 17, 14 through 19, Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as, as I'm not of the world. I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as as I am not of the world. And then here's the key phrase. God, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That is an amazing phrase. What he's saying is, transform them, Lord, in the truth. What's truth? Your word is truth. And then he says, as you sent them into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, before we explore this, I want to give you a little bit of background. John wrote five New Testament books, and his books constitute just over 20% of the entire New Testament. And John loves this notion of truth. He uses the word 46 times in all of his books. He uses the word 26 times in the Gospel of John alone. Now, that's kind of amazing because compared to the rest of the Gospel writers, or really New Testament writers, they don't use that term that much. John is like obsessed with this idea and this notion of truth. And in John 18.38, John depicts Pilate asking the classic question of all time What is truth? What is truth? So let's ask Pilate's question. All right, I'm asking you the question What is truth? Could you define what truth is? Let me give you a simple definition of truth truth is a relationship of correspondence. That is such an important thing for you to understand. It's a relationship of correspondence. The idea is that if what I say matches up to what is real, then I speak the truth. If, on the other hand, what I say does not match up to what is real, I am telling a lie. For instance, let's say that I claim that my name is Tony Romo. Okay, My name is Tony Romo. I am the injured quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. I'm I'm making a truth claim to you. My name is Tony Romo and I am the injured quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys. I have the most touchdowns of any Dallas Cowboys quarterback. What would you do? You would check out those claims. (laughs) And you you would check out my picture versus Tony Romo's picture. You would check out my claims. And if you determined that I am not Tony Romo, what would you say about my truth claims? They're false, okay? My truth claims have got to correspond to reality. So let's apply this to Jesus for a second. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Because Christianity is such an historical faith, you can test that truth claim. Is he the way, the truth, and the life? Is he the truth, for instance? What Jesus is saying is, I represent the Father's character. I'm the truth. I represent the Father's love. I convey the Father's glory. I am one with the Father's essence. I will achieve victory through the resurrection. I am the truth. He is making a statement that he, in his being and in his truth claims, corresponds to ultimate reality, the reality the way that it really is. That's an astonishing claim. No other religious leader ever made any claim like that. Jesus alone makes it. It's an astonishing claim. Let me take it one step further. This is precisely the same claim that the Bible makes. Now, Now, think about this for a second. The Bible claims that it is truth and if you're an astute person you say that's a circular claim (laughs) like the bible is claiming that the bible is true that's a circular claim it's totally circular i I can't buy that Well, here's the caveat caveat is that the bible is not one book it's a library of 66 books the bible was was written over 1500 years by 40 different authors on three different continents in three different language, in many different genres, the Bible is not a single book. When when it was originally written, it was a, a diverse set of books, and this library of books is claiming that the other books in the library are truth. Are truth. So when Jesus says, "Sanctify them in your truth," your word is truth. Jesus is saying that the ultimate 66 books that we know today are going to be truth, meaning they are going to correspond to reality the way that reality really is. Where do you want to go if you want to find big truth, capital T truth? Where do you you go? You go to Jesus. And you go to his word. We have to take this one step further, though, because um, this law... Uh, This view of truth is not just based upon the concept of correspondence. It's based upon the law of non-contradiction. Okay, Correspondence is an important thing to remember. Non-contradiction is also an important thing to to remember. The law of non-contradiction says this. If truth claim A says something and truth claim B says the same thing, then A is right and B is right, or they're both right or they're... Well, A is right and B is wrong, or they're both wrong, but they both can't be right in the same sense at the same time. Two truth claims. They're contradictory. A is right, or B is right, or they're both wrong, but they can't both be right in the same sense at the same time. So let me illustrate it for you. If I claim that my shoes are black, and my wife claims that my shoes are red, like the ruby red slippers in The Wizard of Oz, then we have a problem. Either either I'm right, or my wife is right, or we're both wrong, but we can't both be right in the same sense at the same time. Now here's where the rubber meets the road on this. Islam says that Jesus was not killed or crucified. That's very clear. Obviously, Christianity says that Jesus died on the cross and was crucified and, and, and rose from the dead. So, Islam's truth came, claim is, in contra- is is contradictory to Christ- the truth claim of the Bible. So, Islam is right, or Christianity is right, or they're both wrong. But they both can't be right in the same sense at the same time. That's how that's how truth works. Truth operates according to the law of non-contradiction. So here we have the biggest question, the big question of all questions, and that is, what is truth? And the answer is that truth is a statement of correspondence. If what I say corresponds to reality, it's true, and truth operates according to the law of non-contradiction. And what we have to say is that that's, it's not just an intellectual thing, according to Jesus. It's found in a person. It's found in the person of Christ. So let's go back to John 17, 17. Uh, here's a picture of the truth that sanctifies. Imagine a caterpillar uh, going into a chrysalis. The monarch caterpillar positionally is a monarch butterfly, right? Positionally, that's what it's going to become, but for a good portion of its life, it's totally earthbound, walking on these little short legs. Positionally, it's a butterfly, but it's earthbound for a good portion of its life. When the pater- caterpillar is about to go through its transformation, he hangs. Uh, he spins a silk pad from underneath a branch, he begins to hang from the silk pad, he pulls the skin inside out, a string comes down, which has been in his abdomen the entire time. The chrysalis now appears from underneath the skin, and he's completely surrounded in that new house. And that, that little chrysalis has got a gold crown around around the top of it, and it's, it's green. He hangs in that sack for 10 to 14 days. And in, during that time, this transformation takes place inside and everything comes from cells that are already resident in the monarch caterpillar. About 24 hours before he breaks through, the chrysalis becomes completely transparent. You can see the coloring of the monarch butterfly inside. Um, Now, when when he exits, he's got this big fat belly and his wings are totally crumpled, so he still has to wait and hang and what he does is he squeezes the blood from his abdomen into the wings, the wings begin to harden in the sun, and then he takes off. He has encountered transformation. Formally, before the chrysalis, he was positionally a butterfly, but he had to go through that transformation experience in the chrysalis in order to fully emerge as the monarch butterfly that's so exquisitely beautiful. Now, I want you to think about how that applies to us, because Jesus is saying, Lord, sanctify them in your truth. Transform them by your truth. Change them by your truth. So how does that work? Well, like the monarch butterfly, your spiritual growth is painfully slow. It is painfully slow. Remember my, my daughter, my firstborn daughter, Sarah. I love Sarah. Sarah, when she was in high school, you know, I would say, Sarah, you, you have, you, have not been doing this and this needs to change. She said, dad, I've I've totally changed. I've totally changed. Seriously. I totally changed. Believe me. Well, for how long? Two days, two days, totally changed two days. And I remember saying to my daughter, let's get a little bit more of a track record beyond two days and change is is slow it's it doesn't it's not it's not fast it's not it's not quick and the change of the monarch butterfly inside the chrysalis is is slow talking 10 to 14 days which is a long time in the life cycle of monarch butterfly so how does god's word begin to do that transformation process well part of it's through regular spiritual disciplines i'm rereading a dallas willard book right now and he talks about the importance of regular daily spiritual disciplines Talks about the fact that change takes place slowly, but it takes place progressively as we do those disciplines that begin to change and shape our heart in a Godward sort of a direction. Um, Digging into God's word is part of that discipline. Whenever I dig into God's word, I enter a mini chrysalis. And I allow God's word to shape my mind. That mini chrysalis has got to be a chrysalis where the Holy Spirit is present and empowering me. Think about what what Jesus said in John 15, 26. When a helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. So if I'm gonna read the truth, um, hoping for transformation, I need to have the Holy Spirit inside me Helping me understand that truth so that that transformation can actually take place. Here's, here's the amazing outcome. And G- Jesus says in John 8:32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So think about that, that butterfly, you know, about, about ready to fly. Why can he fly? He's been transformed in the chrysalis. Now when he begins to flap his wings and he's no longer an earthbound creature, but a skybound creature, a sky-free creature. He's got the freedom that was resident inside there all along. So when Jesus says, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth, what Jesus is saying is God's word has the power to transform you so that you become a fundamentally different person than you were before in terms of your, in terms of your, your character. Now I need to add one more facet to this. Jesus never calls us in transformation alone. Notice what he says in John 17, 17, and 18. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them, plural, a mission in the world. So I get sanctified by the truth, not as an individual Christ follower who does not need anybody else. I get sanctified in the truth as a Christ follower who is in community, in a countercultural community. And that way, we as a, as a, as a, a community, as a group of people, as the body of Christ, we encounter transformation corporately. So here, here's a way to summarize this: We're a countercultural community, endowed with an eternal purpose, founded on the truth. I, I have to tell you that is a very compelling vision for life. We're a countercultural community, transformed, endowed by an eternal purpose, founded on the truth, and it's countercultural. It's countercultural. You know, there's never, ever been a society on the face of the earth that was totally and completely Christian. I know you're probably thinking wait a second, what about the early church? How, how long did that last? It lasted a matter of months before the persecution came. And even during the early church, they were countercultural. How about early Christianity? I mean, early America. You know, there was the Great Awakening that took place in the 1740s and the 1750s. During the Great Awakening, a lot of people were coming to Christ, but those who did come to Christ, they were countercultural to the prevailing culture. Rodney Stark talks about how, yeah, in early colonial America, people were, you know, God-fearing people and they believed in Christianity in general and the worldview in, in, in many ways, but people were not adherent to the Christian faith. In colonial America, not the way we would define adherent to the Christian faith from the Bible. Those people who did come to Christ in early colonial America were definitely countercultural to the prevailing society. There's never been a time where Christianity, authentic re- Christianity, was the dominant force in society, and it never will be. We've been called to be resident aliens and exiles on the face of the earth. So let's sum up Jesus' view on the truth. Truth is a statement of correspondence. It's a statement of correspondence. Jesus' words and his works correspond to the character of the Father. The Bible, which is God's word, corresponds to the mind of the Father. Um, And we're to be transformed by the truth. One, One final illustration before we switch gears. I love writing notes to my kids. I love it. I'm not sure how much they appreciate the notes all the time, but I love writing handwritten notes of encouragement. You know, part of my mission as a dad, as a husband, as a father and a grandfather is to create a culture of thriving within our family. When we're all gathered together, which is rare, we're a family of 18 seems impossible. We just seems yet like yesterday we were a family of six. We're now a family of 18. My mission in our family is to empower my family to thrive. And part, part of that is writing, writing notes. So I write a handwritten note to my son, Jared. I forgot that I had written the note. It was a note of encouragement. It was a note of me saying, hey, I appreciate you, love you, I'm proud of you, so on. We go to North Africa to visit. And I find that note on a shelf. Now, by that time, that note was five, six, seven months old. It's on a shelf. Now, why did he keep that note on the shelf? He kept the note on the shelf because, as, as his dad, my statement of truth about him mattered. It mattered. I am proud of you. I respect the way you are doing your marriage. I respect the way you're doing your family. I'm proud of you. I'm saying affirming words as his dad. And the idea the idea, is that your Abba Father has written a book that affirms your position as a joint heir with Christ as one who is transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And on and on and on it goes. And God wants you to take take this book and look at it as his his love letter to you, as his handwritten note that says, I love you. I am glad that you know me. I can't wait to see you in heaven. I'm going to unfold many good things for you and he wants you to be transformed by that deeply personal truth. Your Abba Father has delivered deeply personal truth to you and he wants you to be transformed by it in community. Now, we have to totally switch gears because we we gotta go from the Bible to culture. Why is it, why is it that people have such different views on truth today? Now, the reason I debated about whether to share this but the reason why I want to is I want to see that there was a definite reason why things changed over the past 300 years. I want to take you back to the year uh, 1844, to this guy by the name of Frederick Nietzsche, who's got a seriously uh, large mustache. So one, one thing, if you don't know anything about Frederick Nietzsche, he's got, he's got a, 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 his mustache is a little too big, in, 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 my, in my opinion. Frederick Nietzsche... <clears throat> Frederick Nietzsche was um, born into an evangelical Lutheran home in 1844 in Roken, Prussia. Nietzsche's father, Ludwig, was a pastor. His mother was a very young but very kind-hearted follower of Christ. When Nietzsche was five, tragedy struck their family, and Nietzsche's father died, and Frederick Nietzsche never, ever got over it. For the next 15 years, Nietzsche progressively ditched his Christian faith and began a pattern of rebellion against all authority figures. And while still, he's a brilliant guy. And so while still in his teens, he gets these advanced degrees in philosophy. And by the time he's 24, he is the chairman of the philosophy department at the University of Basel in Switzerland. And he is brilliant, and he is as anti-Christianity as you can possibly be. He called it, quote, the greatest of all conceivable corruptions. Christianity is the one... Immortal blemish of all mankind. In, 19, in 1882, he published his book called The Gay Science, in which he argued that God is dead. God is dead! And he introduced this concept again in his book called The Madman. Now, when he said that God is dead, there's another picture of that really large mustache he, he said, God is dead, he remains dead, and we have killed him. Now, he didn't mean that somehow God died somewhere billions of light years away in the universe. didn't say that. What he says is the influence of God is dead in our culture. There's no reason why we should believe in God in our culture. Our science, our philosophy has totally equipped our, eclipsed our need for God. We don't need his morals. We don't need his values. We don't need his revelation anymore. We don't need him to provide any meaning to us. Now, when he wrote this, the world at large did not totally accept it because God was very prevalent in both American and in European culture on the popular level. But it took big time traction within the intellectual world. So um, people kind of grasped onto this idea and so you've got guys like Charles Darwin who's works say you don't need god to explain the origin of the universe you've got guys like karl marx who said you don't need god to explain the internal workings of the soul because there is no soul and then you got sigmund freud who said you don't need religion so here frederick nietzsche introduces a, a a philosophy and other scientists are going along with this philosophy you don't need god for creation you don't need you know God to save your immaterial soul, which you don't have. You don't need God for any sort of religious purposes. You don't need God. He is irrelevant. You don't need him at all. So at the beginning of 1900s, there was this consensus that was emerging in the broader culture that you don't need God. You don't need the Bible. All you re- really need is science. That's all you need. Just, just science. Then something happened on May 29, 1919 that i cannot tell you how much this shook the world but it it shook the world albert einstein um, photographed a solar eclipse well he didn't personally photograph it but he commissioned the experiments off the coast of uh, africa and south america and these photographs demonstrated the truth of his theory of relativity and it was written up as some confirming experiments Is the idea that space and time are relative to motion. Um, It's the idea that the faster you go, the more you approach the speed of light, the the more the sensation of time slows down. I won't go into all the details of it. But here's what's crazy. When this was presented, Einstein's theories were completely misunderstood in in the popular culture. Completely misunderstood. Here's how one historian put it. At the beginning of the 1920s, the belief began to circulate. For the first time at a popular level, there were no longer any absolutes of time and space, of good and evil, of knowledge, above all, of value. Mistakenly, relativity, and he's talking about Einstein's theory of relativity, became confused with relativism. It's it's almost like people looked at Einstein's theory of, of relativity in cosmology, and they said, oh, that must apply now to morals and values and religious relativity as well. Now, Einstein did not want people to interpret it that way, but they, but they did. And so now the God is dead idea begins to filter down into pop culture, and you've got the president of Princeton University, who then became the president of the United States, teaching that, you know, Jesus is really not the truth. N- not ultimate truth. Great guy, great moral teacher, but not really, not really the guy who was is really true. And then other things begin to happen, like the eugenics movement ra- ramps up. We, hey, we can improve the human race through selective breeding among people. The sexual revolution went into overdrive in the 1920s. We, you know, people who grew up in the 60s think it it really revved up in the 60s. It really revved up. In the 1920s and the 60s were kind of the outcome of, of that. And the success of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917 seemed to give proof sociologically that, yeah, maybe God is truly dead. We don't need him anymore. And so we can dispense with that idea. Uh, then you have the famous press conference of the Beatles in 1965, where John Lennon, in a really offhand, and I, I've heard John, I heard an interview of John Lennon years after he said this, not that many years, but you know, Lennon says at the press conference, yeah, "Hey, we're more popular than Jesus now." Now, if you were in Chase Stadium in 1965, you you've, you probably could have said, "Yeah, <laughs> maybe." I mean, was there was there any was anything like beatlemania going on anywhere in the world like what happened in new york when the beatles came in 1965 you look at the the old youtube clips and you think that's unbelievable unbelievable and when he says we're more popular than jesus a lot of people go uh that that, yep that may be true from a a practical level and then you had the famous cover god is god dead time magazine april 1966 people still talk about this in the annals of publishing as being a, a really big deal. So th- think about this now. From the time of Nietzsche saying God is dead to 1966, you've got all these things that are taking place and by 1966, by 1966 you could say, yeah, I mean, it seems as if God is sort of irrelevant to the society. Seems as if the might not be any truth. So let me tell you where we are, where we are now. Let me give you four, four, five, six bullet points of where we are now. In the year 2016, many people say you can't know anything about reality. Even though that's a self-defeating statement because that statement means I know something about reality. It's a self-defeating statement. But many people say you, you really can't know anything about reality. Truth is really unknowable statement number two not only is there no real truth there is no you don't really have an authentic self Uh, you don't have a soul Uh, you become a soul through your experiences in life it's almost like as you go through life you brand yourself you are what you do in life you are born without much of a soul you die and who knows where you go so it all matters what you do in your life you brand yourself through your experiences you make truth as you live there's no independent meaning. Hey, if I want to interpret say the book of the Gospel of John as if Jesus is a is a Martian who came to earth from outer space, I can do that because there's no independent meaning. Um, what's true for me, I believe you know John was Talking about a Martian came from of space. If that's not true for you, that's fine. I mean, we're, we, we, there's no independent meaning, no independent reality. In 2016, there are no big stories. You know, a big story is a meta narrative or a big world view. There's no no big stories. Hey, your big story's fine for you. My big story's fine for me. But there's no overarching big story that explains everything. Now, you know, the Bible claims to be a big story. The Bible claims to be a meta-narrative. The Bible claims to be a worldview. People today say, no, that, 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 that's, that's too oppressive for you to say that your meta-narrative is the ultimate meta-narrative and, and mine is not ultimate. So there's no ultimate, no ultimate big story. My tribe is all important. Well, boy, we, we see that all over culture, you know. Hey, my tribe is all important. I'm against you, I'm against your tribe. My tribe constructs truth. I don't care about your tribe. You, you can have your truth, but I don't care about your tribe. My tribe is the one that's, that's all important. And the final concept is that versions of truth can change. Hey, uh, the truth I believed in 2015 is very different than the truth I believed in 2016. It's okay. Truth changes and it's not a big deal. So where, where are we with regard to truth today? Uh, There's no truth with a capital T. Truth has been politicized. Truth has been branded. Truth um, is such that I prefer the branded version of my truth rather than the real thing because I kind of like the brand. The brand feels cool and and awesome and hip, and I'd rather have that than really having the real thing. And I'm going to compete that my brand has dominance. Look, if you... Um, face a choice in this culture. And the choice is, I go with a flow about truth, no truth, truth changes, truth no big deal, or I passionately embrace the truth. And here's Jesus' vision for your life, that you would reject the truth claims of the culture, kind of the anti-truth ethos of the culture, that you would reject that. And you say, I am embracing truth in a person. And I am embracing truth in a book, in his word. I'm embracing Jesus as the truth. I'm embracing the scriptures as the truth. And I'm going to build my life around that truth. We all have a a choice because when you get to the point in 2016 where truth is branded, and you think, oh, that brand of little t truth, that brand, I really like that brand of truth. I'm going to buy into that. You've moved out from underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus intentionally is asking you to form a countercultural community with him at the center and with the scriptures as your guide. So what does that mean for us practically? Practically. Um, some takeaways how to be be transformed about the truth first of all confront your love for the world I, 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 I got to tell you if if John says love not the world or the things of the world that if he's got to say that that means that I have to confront my love for the world in fact I've got to confront my love for The various little truth claims that the world makes upon me and i've got to say you know what i'm confronting that and i'm 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 gonna reject my love for that because that that is not about my love for jesus so i think we have to be people who are very good at self-confrontation do i love this brand of truth that's coming at me you know uh, about two weeks ago I was in a funk, and as I'm struggling with my funk, my wife said, I think you should get away to Osage Hills for a day and pray. So I put it off, and I put it off, and I did that on Friday. And um, as, I'm, as I'm doing that on Friday, I pick up a Dallas Willard book, and I realized that my funk of two weeks ago was essentially an idolatrous expectation that I really hadn't confronted. I had just kind of pa- let it passively come into my thinking. And I confronted it on Friday. I said, Lord, I don't know why I allowed myself to let this creep into my thinking. It's, it's, it's like completely against what I say I believe and how I say I want to live. We have to do that. We have to confront our idolatrous expectations that are counter to the truth. Secondly, build strong relationships in the body of Christ. And I should, should have added strong, authentic relationships in the body of Christ. You can be in a nonproductive relationship with another Christian. But to be in an authentic relationship in the body of Christ helps you embrace and passionately embrace the truth. Thirdly, build a strong relationship with God's Spirit, because God's Spirit is the one who is going to help you apply God's Word into your life. And then finally, be prepared, because I'll tell you, the world out there is hungry, 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 hungry for the truth. Yeah, people might say truth is relative. People might say, don't push your truth on me. But you know, when I talk to people who have recently come to Christ, what they've told me is they were hungering for something that was big capital T truth. And their push back on their small little t truth was not so much that they really passionately believed the little, little t truth, but it was they wanted somebody to convince them that there was such a thing as big, big T, capital T truth. There's a world out there that's actually hungry for the truth and so that means you've got to boldly state who you are what you believe and why it matters and that takes courage so when I, when I think about this idea about truth truth is something that corresponds to reality truth follows the path of non-contradiction truth has to be enjoyed in community, but truth actually really is found in a person, Christ, and he's forming a community of people who are passionate for the truth. Now, with that in mind, we want to transition toward, toward communion, and, um, and, and as we do, what I, what I would like for you to do, just, as, just in the moments before you come forward, is to think about Jesus as the truth and invite Jesus we'll turn the lights low we'll have a moment of silence invite Jesus to minister his truth to you and and what I mean by that is just just you, you say lord Jesus i i love you lord Jesus i want to be i want to be transformed by your truth i want to be changed by your word and f- tell him about what you want with regard to his truth.